Foster, usually I have a notebook and I make recourse to a notebook and think about what I'm going to say. But this is the first football library chat of over 100 that is completely unplanned. I'm in your hands, really, because you're a writer of more repute than I. So congratulations. Have you got something on at the moment, book-wise, or are you mining your football elsewhere? I've just finished revising the playoffs book. So the Agony in the Exigs, that originally came out... Originally 2013, I think. We've been through a couple of revisions, but the last one we did was in 2017. So I've decided a while ago that we needed to update it. So... Is it... uh, there's a new edition coming out in April. Ah, I was going to say 25, but it's 35, isn't it? 35 years. Yeah, 1987 was mm-hmm. the original. When they first split, when they added the second division, basically, because obviously the Football League started, there was just the 12 clubs. Then they decided, oh, we need some more. So in 1892, I think off the top of my head, they had a second division and they had to work out promotion and relegation. So what they used to do is they used to take two teams who are at the bottom of the first division, two teams who are at the top of the second division, and they would play test matches against what they called test matches against each other. They used to do it in a league system, so they'd play each other twice, so there'd be six games. And then there was a very infamous game where two clubs decided that if they drew they would both be in the first division. And that led to one of the worst goalless draws ever, uh, which helped both teams. Uh, and they got rid of the test matches after that because they felt too open to uh, collusion, I'd say. There's a, there's a section on the footballmind.com where you say you're looking to involve other writers and broadcasters to provide a different perspective. The Football Mind is very young, so it, it's not like um, you know, an old colliery in Yorkshire. I only set it up in August. <clears throat> so I'm still working through it and I, I, I'd be very happy to hear from people. I've heard from a couple of people. Yeah, it, potentially I would like to open it up to other people but um, as it's quite a, a young chick at the moment yes. um, I'd, I think it needs to probably have another couple of months under its belt before we start opening up again. Well, do keep me in mind, because I'd like to contribute stuff to do with football literature. You do get your football library card. Do you want Ron Nodes or Roy Hodgson or Brian Glanville on your card? I don't want to sound disloyal, but I would have Brian Glanville. That's quite all right. Glanville is the option, unless you're Scottish, in which case you get Hugh McIlvanny, or you're a Spurs fan and you get Hunter Davis. Well, I'm married to a Scot, so do I, do I get the choice of human or American? Um, I think because you are more closely affiliated with English football, you will take Glanville. Okay. Glanville, who is 90 in September, 9-0. Yeah. And uh, it's almost 70 years since he invented football criticism. Not football reporting, football criticism. No. Obviously, a, a great man. And Hugh McIlvenny, I think. <clears throat> would probably be my favourite football writer. Um, oh. But yeah, Glanville, you know, he he forged the path, didn't he? he? He made it a slightly different thing to be writing about football, not just match reports. And very impressive that he's still going, really, isn't it? Yeah. And 
his World Cup books are actually pretty amazing. I know because I wrote something called World Cup Nuggets for the last World Cup, and I I relied heavily on Glanville's books. We all need our um, sources, and Brian Glanville is certainly one of mine. We all we all step in his shoes. Uh, there is a, a whole host there. There are a whole host of nuggets, uh, which you also post on Twitter at, I yeah. believe it's uh, Rich uh, R.C. Foster. What does the C stand for? Uh, Charles. Uh-huh. Very good. Um, the first football nugget came just before Christmas last year. Liverpool's, I'm not going to yeah. remind you what the scoreline was, but Liverpool beat uh. a certain team and it was their uh-huh. worst ever league home defeat. Uh, they also yes. lost to Anfield 9-0 back in 1989. What was worse, the 9-0 at Anfield or the 7-0 at Selhurst Park in front of no fans, admittedly? Well, I wasn't at Anfield, but unfortunately I did watch the game in December. Um, I, I think because of the fact that you know we got our revenge on Liverpool uh, later on that season by beating them 4-3 in the semi-final, um, the 9 nil has become part of the fabric of that whereas the 7 nil still hangs over us a little bit and we haven't got our revenge yet although I will point out our last game of uh, the league season is at Anfield oh, and they're not doing very um, well at all at Anfield on their current form you know, if we need three points, then where else, where better to get it than at Anfield? I, I, I've only been to Anfield once, which is a shocking admission. And it was to watch Palace in an FA Cup game, the replay, uh, where we were expected to get completely um, thrashed. And somehow we won 2 0. So uh, I've got a 100% record at Anfield. Maybe if they're allowing fans back in, I should go up there for the last game of the season. That's marvellous. Well, I have to put something right, because it occurs to me that I've never been into Selhurst Park. I've been to Selhurst, because I used to live in Wimbledon. And the podcast that I used to do, the Ronnie and Ramage podcast, the very first one dealt with the game in 2016, when Watford, helped by Valon Barami, beat Crystal Palace 2-1. And since then, it's been Watford against basically Wilf FC. Um, But I remember there was a day in 2013, very near where you live. Um, Did you have lots of Crystal Palace fans back to yours the day that Palace went back up in 2013? I I went with my son, actually. So he was at that stage, he'd have been about 12 years old. (laughs) And... I obviously met a few Palace fans along the way because there were quite a few there. But actually, funnily enough, we, we came back after the game and we had a, a Thai meal, as is traditional when you get promoted, um, just with my uh, other members of my family, so my wife and my two daughters who are slightly older than my son. So um, it was just just us five, actually. Yeah. I, was, I was, You know what it's like, um, Johnny, when you've been to a big game and it's it's you know obviously there's a great deal of joy but it's quite exhausting isn't it and in a way having just a quiet meal with your family well it wasn't that quiet uh, a relatively quiet meal with the family is, is actually one of the better ways of doing it i think the same meal would have been had by kevin phillips whom john actually taught john berry taught the young kevin phillips said he was huge application to his game, trained really well. And he, Palace yeah. was his penultimate playing job 
And who else could have taken that penalty that got Palace into uh, the Premier League? Well, I mean, if you were going to choose anybody to take it, he would be the man. I mean, I'm never that relaxed when we have a penalty, but I, I was within, you know, being slightly nervous. I, I was, I was delighted that he was the man who was going to take it. Obviously, not so good for uh, Watford fans, as he was, you know, forged his reputation at your club which was a long long time ago i call yeah. him kevin bloody phillips and he's mm-hmm. he's got a very good coaching career behind him probably not as a number one but if you're gonna have anyone to teach you as a young pro how to finish which is um there's part of the game that a goal is still a goal in the way that a hand is not a hand and a, a leg is not a leg a toe is not a toe anymore but a goal is a goal. And there are so many things that I don't like about football, many of which are chronicled in, is it two books that you've written? Actually, the first book I ever wrote was called The A to Z of Football Hates. And then I followed that up with Football's Flaws and Foibles because I still had quite a few to get off my chest. And as you say, you know, they do build up, don't they? And, and uh, in a way, it's a cathartic process is write a book, get them all out there and you feel a little bit better, maybe for a couple of months and then they start building up again. It's almost... So, you know, I've got quite a few already, you know, um, since Football Slaws and Foibles came out. So there's plenty there. Volume three, I await. You're kind of like the anti-Danny Gray. Danny's uh, books about seeing a ground for the first time, the referee's whistle... The, the romance of the pie and then you're the dumping on, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah as you know dumping on FIFA from a great height and various things pertaining to the rules of the game is there one when people ask you what is the one thing that has to end that is a flaw or a foible or a hate both actually one on the pitch and one off the pitch I'll give you that okay well I mean FIFA uh, the Qatar World Cup should be stopped now second um I don't care where it is, but it can't be in Qatar. On the pitch, I've, I've got a, a couple of new ones now. Have you noticed, it, uh, this has crept into the game recently, where defenders, when they potentially you know, clear the ball off a corner, they start doing this fist-bumping thing. Mm. And you're just thinking, hang on a minute, you're a defender, your job is generally to stop people scoring goals don't start fist-bumping every time you stop a goal. I mean, I, I do actually blame tennis for this. Yeah, this is a psychology, as you may know, it's a psychological thing. Uh, yeah, I, you watch tennis doubles. I don't watch tennis very often, but obviously when Wimbledon's around, you can't, you can't mm, avoid, avoid it. it. But you see them always talking to each other, double every point, and then there is the ludicrous issue when someone serves a double falls, they do a fist-bump, and you're just going... You just serve a double fault. Why are you congratulating your partner? And why is your partner even thinking about it? He should yeah. be skulking away in the corner. And this is, I think, something that may be creeping into football is that the sort of the amount of congratulation that people are giving each other and according each other just for the simple things. I it's, think it's, it's something like, to do with hormones. I think if a uh, teammate touches you, or gives you a physical encouragement, that will help foster the team ethic for the next event. Yes, possibly. But all the but same, I, it is annoying, especially in doubles tennis. 
And there's there's one other thing that's really got to me uh, the last, it must have been the last couple of years. And I'll, I'll point out now, I absolutely love Martin Tyler. He's a fantastic chap. And uh, I've spoken to him a few times. He's very generous with his time. He's a, he's a great guy. But he must stop doing the thing that he's doing about saying... And it's and live! it's live! That's not you, Martin Tyler. That is so not you. We know. We know. He's been told by someone to say it for the branding. I know. Yep. I know. It's horrible. And it's just, it's, it just, it's not right. It should stop now. You know, let, let, let me, let it be somebody else, but don't get Martin Tyler to do that. He's 70 bloody three. Exactly. He shouldn't be doing that. No, you don't see Roy Hodgson doing the things that a 30 year old manager does. Exactly. Yeah. Would you expect Brian Glanville to, you know, be putting a TikTok together? No, you wouldn't. No, but it would be it would be a good way to promote the football library. So I've, I'm looking yeah. at your website, thefootballmind.com. There is a picture of you standing in what I, I think is a bookshop, but it may well be uh, your own personal library. Uh, your library must be quite vast. It's it's relatively vast. That is actually a bookshop. You're right. It's, I don't want to do any branding, but it's the Owl Bookshop in Kentish Town. I've um, walked past it several times. The Owl Bookshop. Uh, it's, it's where I did my um, book launch of my most recent book, Premier League Nuggets. Yeah, it's it's a good bookshop. Other bookshops are available. Yeah. Um, I've got quite a few bookshelves uh, stuffed with football uh, books. I was thinking about this the other day because obviously I knew I was talking to you. I was looking at them and I was trying to remember actually reading some of them and and a few of them do go into the sort of myths of time, don't they? And you can't quite remember which ones are which because they're, you know, let's face it, if you've read one footballer's autobiography slash ghosted biography, you've probably read all of them. Uh, There are a few exceptions. There are a few exceptions. The exceptions are really interesting. I've read Jamie Carragher's book with Chris Bascom about football's greatest games and I think that's a game changer because you're seeing someone who is either involved or who is a fan of or knows the people involved in or wants to know the people involved in these games and I think that's a marker and we may see Jermaine Genus's greatest games Alan Shearer's greatest games Shearer's at the Athletic now do you subscribe to the Athletic? Yes I do yep yep uh, were you approached to write for The Athletic? Uh, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> well, no, no, it's because you're too old. They're, they're really going for a young, uh, not demographic, but a young writership. And Shearer, at yeah. 50, is probably one of the oldest writer, I'd imagine, um, which is a well, funny thing to say. I'm way beyond Shearer. In fact, I saw his first Premier League game, which was Crystal Palace 3, Blackburn 3, and he scored two goals, oh, which set him off on his... Um, Becoming the Premier League's leading yeah. scorer. When it comes to after 1992, no one can touch him. But, I mean, where does Shearer go? If you're going all the way back to Charlton and Greaves and Vivian Woodward um, and Steve Bloomer, is Shearer in the top three or do we have to judge him by his time? Well, I, d- I don't go that far. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old. No, I don't. Um, far be it for me. I can't to go do. too far back. And I... I yeah, I think it's very difficult to judge players that you haven't seen live. And obviously, you can watch highlights and all that sort of stuff, although there are fewer highlights of the old days. He was one of those players where, once he got into a certain position, 
it was pretty much guaranteed to be a goal. I mean, you mentioned Kevin Phillips earlier. He's probably the same, but obviously he didn't quite reach the levels, although he did win the golden boot when he was playing for Sunderland, which you don't say very often. Mm. Um, and never will again. So, never will again. Shearer, yeah, I mean, and also he did score quite a few good goals for England, didn't he, as well? So, people I've seen live... He would certainly be in the top three strikers. In terms of best ever player I've seen live, it is Paul Gascoigne without oh, now. Interesting. Was this early Gazza? Spurs? Uh, yeah, it was, I, I saw him at Spurs. It was actually, it wasn't a Palace game. It was, for some reason, we went to watch Tottenham. I think they were playing Oxford or something in the FA Cup. Ooh. And Gascoigne was sensational. And then I remember going away to Newcastle with Palace. And he was playing in that, and he was just bewitching. And he was one of the few players where you just go, he's actually so good, I don't really mind him being that good, was it a, he's on the opposition. Was it a kind of Zidane? Because he was very muscular. Um, oh, would he, you put him in yeah, that category? He, he had a way... There are certain players who've got a way of moving around the pitch, which is unique. Gascoigne was one of those where he somehow would wriggle through things. I mean, he, he, he was quite chunky, mm-hmm. but he wriggled and he squirmed and he just had this amazing ability just to get past people. And he never looked like he was trying that hard. It was effortless, but he was he, he was just fantastic. And, you know, we all know the, the joker in the pack and all that sort of stuff, but as a footballer, he was amazing. Mm-hmm. I think he would be... Nowadays, we'd have a different conversation about Paul Gascoigne, but the world wasn't ready to have that conversation to do with his mind. But he was... When he scored that goal in the FA Cup semi-final and then when he did his ligaments, he was only 24. Just about to turn 24. And that's... Like many footballers, the, the early years are the best. People have been talking about Phenomenon Ronaldo and Michael Owen... And Robbie Fowler, yeah. they're just when they have that injury, they're not the same. I wonder if there are any players that you've seen who were just mercurial as a teenager, maybe at Palace, maybe not, uh, and those those who just faded and could have been top top yeah, players. Yeah, I mean, one one Palace player who not many people know is a guy called Johnny Williams, who's Welsh, and when he first started playing, you just thought, well, a you're far too small. Because he just looked tiny. He looked like a schoolboy playing amongst adults. Um, and he was never that big. But unfortunately, he had this horrible propensity to get injured. And he's, he was injured a lot. And he could be could have been a fabulous player. Um, but uh, mainly because of the injuries. And he just never got a run in the team. And then he ended up at child, which no one wants to do. Um, and he got into the Welsh team and he was, you know, on the verge of becoming a, a proper international. But again, sadly, there are just some people who, A, get injured a lot and B, never recover from the series of injuries. And, and he was one of them. And I, I think he could have been quite a player. I agree. I remember reading about Johnny Williams. I pair him with Will Hughes, these kind of really exciting teenagers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, and Hughes is, he actually was captain of Watford at the weekend. I think he'll be club captain at some point um, because he's very much the modern footballer driven, wants to play for England. But ideally, Watford need to be in the top tier. 
and we need to be back playing Crystal Palace at least twice a season. Um, your views on uh, Harry the Hornet? I once ran into him at an event and said, that thing you did, because I knew, I knew who he was outside of Harry, that thing yeah. you did, and he was just enthusing, how, yeah, it got all those retweets and all these comments. Should he have dived um, as a kind of um, homage to Wilf? No, I don't, I don't think it was a particularly clever thing to do. I just think it was... I, I, I've heard a story, I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on the secret here, I heard a story about Harry the Hornet, that apparently at the aforementioned playoff final in 2013, um, Pete the Eagle, who as you know is our mascot, was apparently looking for Harry the Hornet, just to have a chat with him. Mm-hmm. And they sort of came across, and he was in a room on his own, and I think it was his girlfriend was uh, uh, at the door. So Pete the Eagle said, oh, I'm just going to go and say it. He said, oh, sorry, you can't come in. He's getting into the zone. Now, you know, mascots are, are mascots. And, you know, I know uh, there's, there's a good book written by um, Nick Miller about mascots. I'm sorry, you don't get into the zone to become a mascot. You just <laughs> put put your hornet outfit on and out you go. You don't need to be in a hornet zone. So, yeah, I mean, we will always defend Wilf because he's been our uh, talisman and our best player for you know, nine on ten years now. So, decide to wind Wilf up. You're winding up whole yeah. Palace support, and it, it, there has been. It's weird, isn't it? This enmity has sort of grown between Palace and Watford, who never really had any beef. But I remember very clearly. I mean, a better playoff uh, memory for you is when you beat us three 0 at Selhurst Park in the first leg, uh, and then there was a goal was draw in the second. But Ashley Young actually scored in that mm. game. And since the obviously the playoff final, there's been a few Premier League meetings, and um, it's it's quite spicy now. It's it's one of these things that sort of developed out of nowhere. Yeah. Zaha almost got himself sent off uh, the other season. He got, I was listening on the radio. He got in a big argument with yeah. the Watford players, and I think he had to be subbed off. But some would say Wilfred Zaha is just too good for you. What I, is it that um, the owners are just giving him enough money to keep him at the club? Or do you think there is something keeping Zaha, even though every season he says, I'm going to leave, I've got to leave, I've got to leave. Why? Why would you leave if all your friends and family are in South London? And you can drink yeah, anywhere well, you want. And, and also, you know, he did get he, should, he got scarred by going to Manchester United at the wrong time. You know, he was Alex Ferguson's last buy for Man United. You know, and then he came back on loan and obviously saw us through the playoffs. But um, he is an exceptional player. But I think the, the, the issue with him is that I don't think any of the top six really see him as essential to their growth. And they're probably about the only clubs who could afford him. The, the teams, the clubs that could afford him are there. The pr- teams that would really benefit, so the middle section, you know, yeah, your Everton's, Everton, your West Wolves, Ham, maybe, they probably can't afford him. So, you know, he's on very good wages. He would cost you, and he's worth a lot to Palace. So, Parish will put, a label on him saying 80 million 
he might accept 75. But that's a lot of money. He's not a young man. He's in his late 20s. I, don't, I just don't see how it's coming about. And, uh, I think at his peak, and, and he's, you know, he's our top scorer this season, which is not difficult. Um, and he is clearly one of our best players and he energises the, the team when he's in it. But is it, he could have been in the Champions League and done quite well. But I think, quite frankly, it's a bit late for that now. Well, yes, you don't see players moving after the age of 30 anymore just because of the, their asset value. Yeah, but, I mean, the resale value is yeah. nothing. So what, why, if you're going to buy him for two years, he'd then be 31. You're not going to sell him to anyone, are you? He's only going to go down from there. So, And, you know, he's... He's one of those players that when he gets to 31, he'll lose a bit of his pace and that will become, you know, a bit of a problem and he will lose, you know, his powers uh, increasingly after, after he reaches a certain plateau. So, as I say, I, I wouldn't expect him to go anywhere at the moment. OK. Um, I've spoken to a couple of Palace fans, one of whom, Kevin Day, has written a very, very good book called Who Are You? in which he said he told yes. me he didn't want to put Brighton in. He wanted just to put a picture of a sad seagull. But the editors at yeah. said, no, you've got to do better. Um, yeah. So I, I already know about Palace, especially the Wright and Bright era. Um, one of the chaps who wrote that excellent book, Football's Black Pioneers, David Gleave, is mm-hmm. Palace as well. So there's a lot of you. Right. All I know about Selhurst Park itself, as well as Wimbledon playing in it for several years, is that the sight lines from the away section are not good. So if you're an away fan paying 40 quid, you've got to deal with a pillar and watching Crystal Palace. Um, Crystal Palace today, we know what they are. It's Roy and Ray. Is there a succession planning? No, I don't think there is, or it's certainly not evident. Um, I think it's an endemic problem within football that clubs, you know, these are, you know, they're multi-million pound organisations. And generally, if you work in a company, they tend to do some succession planning. However, football clubs are unusual in that they get to a point where the manager, you know, their position is untenable. Then they go, oh, shit, we need to find another manager. Who could we be? And then there's suddenly a sort of supermarket sweep. Who's available? Oh, here he is. We'll get Nigel Pearson or we'll get, you know, Neil Warnock or whatever it might be. It just seems bizarre to me that there isn't more thought about the fact that, you know, dear old Roy, um, I totally respect him. He's obviously an incredible football coach. He's been around for hundreds of years. But surely you've got to see that a 74-year-old man probably isn't going to keep going forever and ever and ever. Why don't we just bring someone in, you know, and gently move Roy, because you can't move him too quickly, gently move Roy just sort of upstairs or something. And so he can be the director of football or whatever you grand title you'd like to call him. Yeah. President of the club. club. President. And then allow someone else to come in. But I think the problem with football is no one wants to share the glory do they no one wants to be the person who says oh well I'll just get this person to come and my associate it just doesn't work we don't get remember when we used to have sort of co-managers it doesn't happen anymore does Bradford, it? Bradford have got a co-managers the Cowleys who were at Lincoln co-managers oh of course yeah, well yeah but... they're brothers that doesn't count yeah well of course um, <laughs> there's, I think there's pairs 
Uh, Roy and Ray yeah, come as well, a pair. Roy and Ray are a pair, aren't they? They, yeah. they go together. Yeah. And but, also, um, I think Akiros at Man United was almost a co-manager. He was, yes. Um, but, but yes, you know, looking was... at the looking at the Palace managers this century: Bruce, Francis, Dowie, Taylor, Warnock, Hart. Sorry to do this to you: Burley, Friedman, Holloway, Pulis, Pardew, Allardyce, someone else, yeah. Hodgson. Um, I think it it just spoke so much that Frank de Boer came in, and within yeah. four losses he was out, and that is horrific. What's it called? Um, due diligence. Do you think the board yeah, are scared I, of doing making the mistake again? I think they probably were to get burned by that. You know, the whole point was you bring in De Boer and he's going to change the style. And the trouble is that Steve Parrish could see that the style that he was bringing in didn't really suit the players. And by the time he worked that out, the transfer window was over and he couldn't really see another three or four months of struggling to cope with what Jabir was having to do. By January, you'd be in a lot of trouble. And Parrish is, you know, he's a practical man. He went, mm, I think we need to change. I, I totally agree. I think it was too quick. You know, four defeats come on. We had, when we first came up, we lost seven of our first eight games oh, I uh, under Holloway. And we were, you know, odds on to go down. But then, obviously, we got rescued by Tony of the Pulis. I, I just want to see some clubs working out a succession plan. I was, in fact, I was talking to someone about this the other day, and probably the last time this sort of thing happened was, you know, the legendary boot room at Liverpool. Not only you had Shankly, but you had Paisley, you had Fagan, you had Moran. They were all in the boot room together, quite snug. Uh, and lo and behold... All of them became managers at some stage, some for longer than others. But, you know, there was a group of people out of which you chose your next manager. That literally does not happen. No, it, it just doesn't happen. happen. Because of the so, environment, yeah. Um, before we go to your life's work in the Football League playoffs, uh, when Kevin was talking about Crystal Palace, Roy knows his formation. You stick four at the back, and I love it's. Great that Joel Ward is still there. Is he a one-club man, Joel Ward? Just no, he came from, came from Portsmouth. Came from Portsmouth. Yeah, I still remember. He played, he played a couple of games, I think a couple of Premier League games for Portsmouth, but he's now our record Premier League appearance uh-huh. maker. And the Just best thing he did, uh, it was clear the ball off the line in the playoff final. Yeah. Which was, yeah, that uh, was quite good. Match win. I remember that vividly. But um, it's Kevin said that Roy likes to put two of... Is it Riederwald, Milivojevic, um, who are the other centre midfielders? McCarthy. McCarthy and MacArthur. MacArthur. Yeah, so that's, and then just Eze, Zaha, Au, uh, and then the back four. If it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. But it's, it's, there's a good mix of personalities. I don't think there's a star in this team. It's a very Roy Hodgson side. You've got some very good pros. Van Antholt, Butland, Tomkins. Dan, Andros Townsend. I would say that given that um, Crystal Palace is in a black area, I think you've got to make someone of black origin the manager of Crystal Palace. Um, I know Andros is doing a lot of media work, but someone with a link with the fan base. Nathaniel Klein claimed through uh, Fiwi, the uh, Brixton school. Gary Cahill, great pro. 
But yeah, this team will bounce straight back up if it goes down. But what do Crystal Palace need in the squad just to make life a bit easier? Is there something missing? I think the midfield what is what I would call prosaic yes. sometimes. In it tends to be the people who stop other people playing rather than do it themselves. Um, I mean, McCarthy is a perfect example of that in that 90% of his passes are backwards, um, but he does a good job and you know, he's very solid, blah, blah, blah. Um, I just think you need a creative midfield player. The last really creative midfield players we've had, I mean, right, Riedemann, don't get me wrong, is a good player and I think he will become, actually. He's quite good. But the, the, really, the two that stand out, Loftus-Cheek came on loan and he was exceptional a couple of seasons ago. But the other one who uh, I will always admire is Kabai. Because Kabai, okay, so he's not a big man, he's not physically strong, but he could thread a past and he could just open things up that other players couldn't. That's the sort of player that we need, mm. as someone with a little bit of a, an eye for the gap or you know whatever it might be. I'm, I'm not a good enough footballer to know what that is, but he, when you watched him, you went, yeah, he's got it. Didn't I read that he's just retired? Yeah, he has, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he's going into coaching. Ah, very interesting. Maybe he'll, he'll, maybe he'll make his way to SC25. Let's hope so, and then he can um, sign the midfield that he wants. He was wonderful, wonderful. Newcastle and France. And France. Yeah, yeah. 